what a great uh, truth to be reminded of this morning. Christ is mine forevermore. What a great thing to be able to sing, to be able to proclaim to the Lord, to proclaim even to each other, to remind one another of that great truth. Christ is mine forevermore. Uh, what a great joy that is. Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans 6, where as Keith mentioned earlier, we're kind of doing a one-off from our series this morning. Uh, tried to, to be able to include it in the series that we were already going through. It was a little bit too stretched thin to be able to, to make that leap. Uh, so we're just doing a one-off this morning. Uh, but the great, the great thing about the, this, this passage and this doctrine that we get to, uh, to look into this morning it's just such a, it's just a wonderful reality, and it's something that even personally has been a great uh, joy to my own heart, um, as God has shown me the the, the mysteries of, of of union with Christ, which we'll be taking a look at, and what that means for the Christian's everyday life. As the Lord has used this to greatly minister to my own heart, not only this week but in, in years prior as well. So, what a great thing we get to look at this morning. We'll go ahead and turn your Bibles so again to Romans six, and please stand for the reading of God's word. As we read Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." For who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, your word says we are to incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be inclined to your testimonies as you've even given testimony of the reality of who we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would just reveal these wonderful truths to us that we would submit and yield uh, to your word as you speak forth to us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you would be glorified above all else in our time together. We pray this for Christ's sake. 
Amen. Please be seated. Well, when I was in high school, I did not look very much like a football player, as opposed to now, obviously. But I was the height that I am now, about six foot tall, but I only weighed between 145 to 160 pounds in high school. One of my best friends, though, very much so looked like a football player. His name was Ryan. And Ryan was about 6'3", 225 pounds. He was an all-region linebacker, had multiple college scholarships in hand. However, when we were in high school, he had some significant family turmoil where neither of his parents were able to take Ryan uh, to any of these colleges that he wanted to visit that were giving him these, these college scholarships. So Ryan asked me if I wanted to go with him on a recruiting visit. Uh, and in fact, I did. That was a great experience for me. He asked me if I wanted to tag along, so I did. And so one Saturday, uh, we were living in Virginia. One Saturday, we headed down the road and went down to Wake Forest University. And after checking in at this special location for some of the different recruits, we sat in a, in a section as well in the stadium uh, for the game, a section that was just for recruits as well as their parents. And then after the game, we were invited to go meet some of the coaches, go into the locker room, meet a number of the players as well. And as I walked into the locker room, there were two clear groups of, player, of, of people that were there. There were the players or the recruits, and there were the parents. And I didn't look like either of those two groups. I did not look like I fit in, unless maybe I was some hotshot new punter or kicker or something. Well, one of the assistant coaches actually looked at me a little confused, and he asked me who I was. And I told him my name. That didn't get me very far. But then followed it with, you know, I'm with this guy. And he's like, oh, okay. At that point, it kind of made sense of it all, that I belonged in that group that was there of the football recruit stars, not because of who I was or my own football prowess, but because I identified with this other football recruit, with Ryan. This whole concept of identifying with, with someone else actually is something which is not only prevalent probably in our own experience, you maybe have stories similar to that of, of identifying with someone else, and that got you in somewhere. But this is actually an important theme she throughout all the scripture in the Old and the New Testaments as well. Going back to, to Adam as humanity's representative, to the priestly service in the temple, to the king of Israel going before the people, and then ultimately culminating in the identifying and union of the elect and Christ. What our passage deals with this morning is not only the profound mystery of being united and identified with Christ, but how this then leads us to obedience, how it leads us to righteousness. We'll see how we have been made free from sin through this union with Christ. So then let us freely pursue righteousness. The first thing that we notice, and as our text explains that to us, the first thing we'll notice is a question that union answers there in Romans 6. The question union answers. Look with me again, starting in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? 
are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? The book of Romans is a very uh, logical, has a very natural progression to it. It's really, it's an argument that's being made, the entire book of Romans. The first three chapters deal heavily with man's sinfulness, whether a Jew or a Gentile. It says there in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. After describing our great need for salvation, Paul goes on to describe how it is through faith that man can be made right, can be justified before God. It is by faith that Abraham was reckoned as righteous, and it is faith which reckons you and I as righteous before God. But how can we know that? How can we be sure that that's true? Paul gives assurance to his readers in the next chapter, in chapter 5, that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Speaking of Christ, that Christ makes us righteous through his saving work and obedience. We can know that faith justifies because of what Christ has done. However, there is a threat to this assurance. There's a threat to the assurance. How am I then to understand the sin which I continue to commit. If everyone has this sin problem, and if we are justified by faith, and if Christ has come, uh, and he has uh, given us this righteousness, why do I still sin? Might my continuing in sin then make the grace of God appear bigger? That he has a, it's a bigger salvation plan because I'm continuing to be deplorable and wretched? How do I deal with being declared righteous by God, yet continuing to sin? How should I view my sin in light of the work of Jesus? And perhaps these are even questions which you yourself have wrestled with. If Christ has saved me, why do I keep sinning? Or have you ever wanted to simply give up living for Christ? Have you thought, hey, I'm a Christian, I know I'm forgiven, what would be the big deal if I lied about that? If I crossed that line, if I clicked that website, if I didn't forgive that one person? Why do we wrestle with such thoughts? How should we consider sin in light of what Christ has done? Oscar Coleman famously uh, described the challenge of living on this side of the cross. Uh, he lived during World War II, and Coleman noted how the success of D-Day, where they stormed and secured the beaches at Normandy, how it says that it practically sealed victory for the Allies then on June 6, 1941. However, as history teaches us, the war did not actually end until May 8, 1945, VE Day, nearly four years later. There were still battles being fought, yet the victory was practically sealed and accomplished. And Coleman says that it's almost like we're living in between D-Day and VE Day. 
victory is ours through Christ, yet we long for the day when we see him face to face in glory. So how ought we to consider our battles with sin today? Does losing the battles make the ultimate victory all the sweeter? Paul asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's Paul's answer. As John Knox, as as he put it, he said, we have died once for all to sin. Can we breathe its air again? Paul expounds on this answer of by no means by describing a beautiful and essential truth of the gospel, union with Christ. Consider our second point in verses 3 through 10, the miracle union is. The first thing Paul points to in this profound relation with Christ actually concerns being baptized into Christ. Follow along, starting in verse 3. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, these verses are seeking to answer the question, how are we to consider and live lives of victory over sin? And Paul immediately directs us toward what? Toward knowing something. Do you not know? In fact, Paul repeats this point of emphasis in verses 6 and 9 as well, underscoring the role of knowing and understanding uh, doctrine in matters of holiness and Christian living. We are directed specifically toward Christ and knowing that our baptism into him is into his death. It is into his burial. And saying we were baptized into Christ's death and burial is to point out how we are identified with Christ and that death. Or as one writer put it, it is the incorporation into and the putting on of Christ. The individuals in the Roman church were baptized into the name of of Christ, and they were baptized into the body of Christ. They were identifying themselves with what baptism really signifies and seals, that Paul describes here, Christ's death. When I was in that Wake Forest locker room, I was identifying with Ryan, having my place in the locker room justified because of my knowing him and receiving the benefit of, if you will, being in the locker room. However, our baptism into Christ's death doesn't just give us the benefits of that death. It allows us to say that it is, in fact, our death as well. It is mine. So Paul goes on to say that we have not only been baptized into Christ's death, but we have been united to him. Look there again at verse 5. It's for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The language just used to describe the relationship between Christ 
and the elect, it, it actually is growing in intimacy. It's growing in closeness. We're not only baptized, identified into Christ's death, but we are united with him in his death and resurrection. The word united carries with it the idea of, of being grown together or being grafted. If you've never seen the grafting of a tree, it's when two trees, for all intents and purposes, become one tree. It's taking an orange tree, uh, slicing it at the bottom, taking a, a lemon tree and slicing it as well, and then joining them together and binding them for a time. They will graft together and actually become one tree producing both lemons and oranges. It's a fascinating thing to see. They are united. What happens to the lemon tree happens to the orange tree because they are one tree. Paul says that we have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. That as Christ died and was buried, so too were you, united to him. As Christ rose from the, ga- from the grave, so too did you, united to him. A real death and a real resurrection. Scripture also tells us that we were crucified with Christ. It says that we were made alive with Christ, that we were raised with him and made to sit with him in the heavenly places. As Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, Scripture tells us that being united to him, we actually are seated with him now, being united to him. Don't ask me how that works. The mystery of union with Christ, that even as Christ is glorified and seated in the heavenly places, so too are you. We too will reign with him, sharers of his glory, co-heirs with Christ. But this union with Christ is to to what end? What's the goal? What's the purpose of it? Look at verse 6. As we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here again, Paul is commending the importance of knowing that which is true, knowing that which is good. Particularly knowing that we have been united to Christ in his crucifixion so that we might no longer be a slave to sin. Sin is here being personified as a, uh, as, a, as a master of slaves, assuming full control over those that are under its rule and power. Sin is the unrelenting master of the unregenerate man. Humanity, all of us, are born into this relationship with sin because of Adam, whereby cannot overcome or overpower sin. Rather, we are unable to worship and glorify and obey God 
the very things which we were created to do. However, it says, one who has died has been set free from sin. And what does this passage tell us? We have died in Christ. We were crucified with him. A slave who dies is no longer subject to his master. He's dead. He does not have to obey him any longer. Sin has no claim on the justified person. Sin has no authority on the one who was baptized in his death and united in his resurrection. Instead, actually, as verses 16 and 17 later on, as they elaborate on, we are now slaves of righteousness unto God. Death no longer has dominion over us. Death no longer has dominion over this one who has died. Literally, death no longer has lordship, it says, over him. Instead, his Lord is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does this mean? It means that our union to Christ frees us from the tyrannical reign of sin and death. Christ died, and we in Christ, satisfying the demands of the law and requirement of this tyrannical slave master. I want to repeat those verbs, though, that demand our reflection that we've made, I may mention of a little bit earlier on. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Do you know about your baptism into Christ? Do you know about being crucified with Christ so that you are no longer enslaved to sin? Do you know that death is no longer Lord because of the resurrection of Christ? What peace this can bring, knowing these truths, that they are real for you. What balm for the soul to know Christ and to know his benefits. God has revealed his gospel to you by his Holy Spirit and his word so that your joy may be complete. Have you written off doctrine, written off theology as a, as a mere pursuit of the academic? Have you valued the uh, experiential and the emotional over the wisdom and knowledge of Scripture? God desires to give you a hope and to give you a peace through the beautiful complexities and even mysteries of the gospel, the union with Christ. But do you know these glorious truths and have failed to let them cascade over your soul to minister to your anxieties, to minister to your fears? You're called to not merely know, but to believe. 
believe them. Indeed, Paul leaves us with the, the proper response to all this as we consider our third point, the response that union demands. Follow along in verse 11. It says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Notice, here are two main responses that Paul challenges us with here. Number one, to consider something. And secondly, to present, or also to not present something. When Paul tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, he's actually using some very heavy language and loaded language here. You might even recall back in Genesis 15, where Abraham believed God's promise made to him, and God counted that faith. He reckoned it. He considered it to him as righteousness. This is the same word when translated into the New Testament. Even though Abraham was still a sinner, by faith in the heavenly judicial courts, Abraham was considered righteous. It was a, a declaration. And so too must we, even when our eyes want to tell us a different story, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our answer to our struggle with sin, even though Christ has made us righteous before God through faith, the answer is not to sin all the more, as Paul was here addressing. Rather, it is to consider yourselves as dead to sin. Because we really are dead to sin. Being baptized in Christ and united with Him. Christ's death and resurrection, it has changed, has altered our position, and we should live in accordance with that new reality that God has set upon us in heaven. As one story goes, when the British government sent word to Jamaica that slavery was at an end in 1834, that was the act of the government in England speaking for a nation, speaking for Jamaica. Slavery in Jamaica was at an end. Every slave then had the right to go free, yet there were slaves who did not believe it and went on with their slavery. They did not take the government's action as unaltered, as if anything really changed. They did not accept the fact that slavery in Jamaica had been abolished. Those who did believe it got rid of their shackles and were set free. And they went free. If we have been united to Christ, yet if we fail to consider ourselves dead to sin and continue to see ourselves as 
being in bondage, then we will continue to live as a slave when Christ has set us free. As Andrew Murray points out, that to say to a slave, do not behave like a slave, is to mock him. But it is a meaningful thing to say to someone who has indeed been set free. He must now give up thinking and living like a slave and start behaving like a free person. As a response to our union with Christ, we are not only to consider this new reality, but to present, namely our members, to God as slaves of righteousness. The Spirit of God has much to say about how we use our members, how we use the bodies that God has given to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 alone, it says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. also says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Instead of pursuing sexual immorality, instead of pursuing sin to make grace appear bigger, we are called to pursue righteousness. Our bodies are to be presented as a living sacrifice before God. So then, Paul will say later on in Romans, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Are you presenting your members as instruments of righteousness? Are you making offerings to the one who has purchased you with his precious blood? Or are you presenting your members to your old master, the one to whom you have died? Beloved, are you wrestling with sin? Are you justifying the sin that is in your life, writing it off as simply something God will forgive? You have died to sin, and you have been raised. Are you exhausted from presenting your members to that old tyrant? Know what Christ has done, and consider yourself dead. There's a great hymn by Charles Wesley, by my favorite hymn, that speaks to these truths of who we ultimately are in Christ. One of these verses says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, 
and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, you have set us free. Lord, not on anything of our own accord, but simply because of what Christ has done. And Lord, you in your grace and in your mercy and love and wisdom, Lord, you have united us to him so that as Christ has died, so too have we. Yet as Christ was risen, Lord, so too have we. Lord, help us to know these truths as challenging as they are. Lord, help us to believe them. Help us to repent, Lord, of the ways in which we so often fall into. And Lord, to pursue you, follow after you, Lord, to live in the freedom which you have not only called us to, but accomplished for us. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.